Beautiful song. All right. Well, tonight, as you can see in your evening bulletin, that we'll be looking at Psalm 50. So please turn there if you have your Bible with you, which we hope you do. It's in your pew Bible if you don't have your own on page number 559. I was excited as we were meeting as a session and planning uh, this necessity um, to uh, fill the pulpit, if you will, in the absence of one of our teaching elders. And this psalm in my studies previously, uh, I always thought it was about Thanksgiving, and I think it is, and it's, in my mind, was timely to come upon the heels of when we celebrate our national holiday of Thanksgiving. And so we picked it. Uh, I wasn't quite sure, but we prayed. And then I think there was a, a I believe the Holy Spirit guided us. And uh, Pastor Fisher uh, said, how about something from the Psalms? And I was thinking about a couple of passages and uh, Psalm 50 was one of them. And so I took that um, as, as some leading there, if you will. I don't want to say a sign, but I said, okay, Psalm 50 it is. Um, I was very blessed in the study of it. And actually came to some surprise. It was illuminated to me, and I, and I hope that I can share some of the things uh, that I found. Um, before I read uh, the text, um, I wanted to share with you one of the things that stuck out to me as I studied and studied through this, and I'm going like this through uh, the psalm here in my right page of my Bible, um, that I noticed it seems to almost perfectly, but you could go back and forth, uh, fit with 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, which say, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for these things, teaching or instruction, reproof for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. As I went through this, this text here, this psalm, um, it seemed like that what was happening um, from Asaph was, or Asaph, however you want to pronounce his name, um, is that we clearly had this pattern. And so from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, uh, I think if you'll kind of keep that in the back of your mind or kind of in the background, you'll see those pretty much in order, that there's some teaching here about who God is, and there's some reproof or rebuke or correction um, about worship, and then there's some training about how to rightly worship, rightly see God, and uh, there's also some rebuke in there, and th so that the people of God might be better equipped for every good work to include worshiping and living before their God. So with that kind of outline and introduction, I would ask you to stand as we read God's word in honor and respect for his word. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to, be, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. 
and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes, or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To, the, to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father God, you speak. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for revealing ourselves to ourselves. Thank you for not keeping silent. Thank you for reforming and renewing our minds that we might not be left alone, that we might find you, and that we might know your salvation. Help us tonight to know you even more clearly through your spirit. Be with me as I attempt feebly through my human body, but by your spirit and by your grace and by faith to deliver your truth to your people for the glory of your son, for he deserves all the honor and all the praise. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So for those of you that take notes, uh, I am growing in my uh, skills as an exhorter. I hope by the grace of God, thank you God, uh, tonight I have four points. And I have, I think, alliteration. So they all start with R. They actually all start with the word reminder. I think we have in this psalm uh, four sections, verses uh, one through six, a reminder of who God is. A reminder of who their God is. In uh, verses 7 through 15, we have a reminder to reform worship. Or a reminder about worship. And in verses 16 through 22, we have a reminder of the sure retribution. That's two R's. Reminder of retribution or judgment. And um, in the final section, verse 23 alone, I believe, we have a reminder of the sure promise of restoration and reconciliation. So that's four points, four R's, reminder of who God is, reminder of to reform their worship in their minds and their practices, a reminder of the retribution that does come, and a reminder of restoration and reconciliation. So as we come to the Psalms, Moving into the beginning of this psalm, if you look at it, it actually begins and is recorded in the scriptures for us with a title. Not the one that the editors uh, and translators of the ESV have put, this in the ESV says God himself is judge, but it says a psalm of Asaph, or Asaph. I have not been to Hebrew, I'm looking way back there. Okay, so I'll get corrected later. I haven't been to the seminary Hebrew. Um, so, but more importantly, um, I think it, it is clear that as we look at uh, First Chronicles, don't look at, you don't have to turn to First Chronicles 16 or, or First Chronicles 6 where the, this name is introduced or Second Chronicles 25, 27, 29 where the name of Asaph or the sons of Asaph are introduced. But uh, this was 
um, basically Levites. And as Moses departed Gideon and left the Ark of the Covenant there, it was the Levites and Asaph and his sons that were left in charge of the tabernacle worship there, of the worship around God's Ark, God's temple, if you will. And so in First Chronicles uh, Chapter 16, 37, you'll see this name, and then later down, uh, you'll see in verse 41 and 42, it says, uh, and expressly, these people were named to give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. So that's what they're giving thanks for. Haman and Jeduthun had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. The sons of Jeduthun were appointed to the gate. So if you will, if you are a musician in the church, and I'm looking down here and other places, uh, if you serve in that way, or if you are a person who serves in full-time uh, ministry or ministry in any capacity, there's, you read this passage in 1 Chronicles 16, and I want you to see that Asaph uh, was in the business of worship and even musical worship with his, his sons and his family. So this could be seen uh, a spiritual, you could be a spiritual child of Asaph if you're in the music business. So uh, this is a, a song about, or a psalm about worship. All right, so little framing there, thought that was interesting in my studies. Moving in to verse one through six. Uh, this is a reminder of who God is. A reminder of who God is. And also, as I alluded to 2 Timothy 3.16, I think this is, uh, all scripture is profitable for teaching. Now this is teaching, this is instruction. Okay, God is setting the proper scene. This is a proper view of your God, the mighty God, it says, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Looking at this in Hebrew, uh, a friend of mine, a teaching elder, um, an RTS graduate and PCA teaching elder, uh, now a chaplain in the army, uh, told me a long time ago that reading the scriptures in translated language such as English is like kissing your wife or your mate with a veil on. You're not truly feeling or getting as close to the true feeling of it, but reading it in the original language, you're just getting fully up close and personal. And as I go to Strong's Concordance and look at these words, I find that effect and I wanna share that with you. The mighty God, God the Lord. So let me say it more like this. The Almighty of strength and power, the Supreme God, even the self-existent, eternal Jehovah. In fact, the I Am, meaning existence itself, that all existence derives its dependent being from. From him who is, or says that I am, the source. That's the Hebrew picture of these words translated. The mighty God. God, the Lord. Speaks. There's your correct instruction and teaching how we are to hear this. This is the being, the person, the existence that is speaking and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. I couldn't help but think about Psalm 19. The heavens declare. Now listen to the words. He speaks and summons the earth is what we're hearing here in verse 1. In Psalm 19, the heavens Declare, hear these words of speech, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor is there a language who hasn't heard this voice. Their voice goes through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In, the, in them he has set a tent for the sun, 
which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man running its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I think we see a very similar picture here in verse 1. In verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. This is a picture from a priest of Israel. You have to think of this setting of where they are and what these people see themselves are with their history. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Zion, of course, is the mountain of God in Jerusalem. You think of the tabernacle and the temple. We think of Psalm um, 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. So the cherubim were on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and there is a glory, a Shekinah glory, if you will, that shines from God. This is the picture. Psalm 50, I'm trying to show you a setting and a correct view of this God, an orthodox, a non-idolatrous view of God. That's what God is trying to do here is teach. Deuteronomy 32, speaking of this shining forth, and he, that is Moses, said... The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, Paran, shined forth. And he came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand, went a fiery law for them. Now, Sinai and Seir and Paran, to my, in my studies, are all different ways of saying Sinai. So picture Sinai. God's lightning and thunder and light shining out of it and him speaking forth of it. This is the priest, the Levite, and the way he's picturing who this God is, using imagery and words that harken back to these times that the people would relate to. And also, as it talks about out of Zion, it is speaking, of course, for us about the heavenly Zion to which God has revealed. Revelation 1.16, and he, that is Jesus, had in his right hand seven stars. And to me, that is like suns, very bright. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. This picture of radiance and glory and light is a proper picture of the presence of God. And Revelation 21, verse 23, of course. And the city, that is the new Jerusalem, the new heavenly city at the end of all things, the eternal city, had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. So there's your picture of this mighty one speaking and summoning the earth. Always through this shining of light through the mountain of Jerusalem. And we think of it from this heavenly picture of Jerusalem. Verse 3. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, and around him a mighty tempest. I looked at this word comes, and it's good. It, it's right. Um, I think what God wants us to see here is our God is not one who does not act. Because this word comes is acts. Comes and goes. Moves. It can be comes or goes, but the point there is our God is one who takes action. This is not a wooden statue or a stone statue that you worship. This is a living, acting God. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. So many images are recalled here. Mount Sinai, again, the wilderness, the tabernacle itself, the judgments for idolatry, the devouring fire are symbols of all of this. Um, the righteous judgment of this supreme God are usually or always accompanied by fire. 
after the judgment in the time of Noah, we uh, see the tempest, sorry, oh, after the time of the judgment of Noah. So we see a, a mighty tempest in the end, that was hearkening back to the time of Noah, a storm, a tempest, the wind and the rain, okay? But after that, we see fire. And so before him is the devouring fire. There's also a picture here of um, this here, Exodus 19, who acted at Sinai and still acts today. This is a call to remember this God who comes or acts. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in a thunder. And so we see in this Sinai picture, both the picture of the devouring fire, God speaking, and also the thunder, a storm, the tempest. And so I think all of these elements is the imagery in verse 3 that Asaph is trying to bring forth to us. Picture who is speaking. Verses 4 through 6, as we finish this first R, a reminder excuse me, I don't have my points in front of me, of who this God is. The call, such as a call to worship, to right worship, the right God, verses 4 through 6. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people, gather to be to me my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So I think that's just kind of a, a recap of everything we're looking at here. I, I see this as uh, just a final statement. He's gathering his covenant people and all the heaven and the earth to witness that he is judge because of everything he has shown and said who he is. And then we see this word at the end of verse 6, selah. Now, this word typically people believe uh, means we're not quite sure, and I can be corrected on that, but to my knowledge, we haven't quite figured out a translation for it. But I think we have concluded that it means from deducing everywhere it's used and how it's used, stop, pause, think, meditate. So some people choose to say it, some people simply choose to do it. Uh, what I'd like to uh, ask us now, since we've gone through all of those points about God, we've been reminded of who this is, in this psalm we should stop as we're reading this and just step away and just think about this before we go on. That's the point of that word selah or selah. I, I, Jeez, I don't know how it's actually pronounced, Selah. Okay, so that's who's speaking. Okay, now that we have a good idea, we've thought about it, we have a good idea of the setting here that Asaph and God the Holy Spirit wants us to see, and we can remember, remember because of this reminder, who we are dealing with, he has something to say to us. So we're at verse 7 and our second point. A reminder about worship or reforming worship. And this is the correction. We had all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching or instruction. I think we were just instructed or taught who God is. Let me remind you accurate who's who you're dealing with number two let me correct the way you see worship here okay because of who you're dealing with so in verse seven god who we just heard about wants us to meditate and now he speaks and so his first word to us is hear O my people and i will speak O israel i will testify against you. 
I am God, your God. So as you look down at that, or you remember what I just said, here's my English translation of that from looking at this. My people, listen, listen now. I'm speaking to you. You who wrestle with God. You who struggle with your God. You who strive with your God, O Israel. You who are in a relationship with God, but you struggle in that relationship. Hear this testimony I have against you. Hear the testimony of your God. I am your God. This testimony against you, to you, my people. Verse 8 through 13. And he's going to go on this correction. It's not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, nor your burnt offerings. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Here's what God is saying. It's not what you're doing necessarily. It's how your heart understands it. You think that you're doing something for me. As if I needed something. You think that there's something that you could contribute to me. As if I needed something or I had need of anything. Even your worship. Even these things that I have commanded you to do. Yes, they are good and we should obey them. But do you think that I need them? You are perceiving me wrongly. You are perceiving the doing of them wrongly. That's what the correction here is, I think. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Listen to this. Same thing. He is the image of the invisible God. The preeminent or firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, or first in preeminence again. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What is Jesus going to say at the last day? Mine, 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 mine. And this is right for him to say it because of what we just read, because of what we read in Psalm 50, because it truly is his. He truly deserves it. He made it. He sustains it. He died for it to reconcile, redeem it, and buy it back from where we and the other creature, Satan and his followers, have tried to rip it from what it was meant to be. And so he is revealing himself back to this correction. It is, it is not right for us to say 
that things are ours in the ultimate sense. We are stewards. We are recipients of the gift of life and of possessions. But in the ultimate sense, all things belong to him. I think he would want to remind us of this, and I think Psalm 50 is a reminder of these things, even in our worship. Having heard all of that, what can we do for God? What can we bring to him that he would accept it as adding to his value or benefiting him? The answer, insofar as it depends on us or within ourselves, is nothing. We can bring nothing to him. Except for this, verse 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. This is all we can do, is say thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for breath. Thank you, of course, for the gift of your son. I don't want to get there yet. That is where proper worship is. We can bring nothing to you. Nothing in our hands I bring. Okay? A little bit, I don't want to call it a, a rabbit trail or a sidetrack here as I look at the time, but not only can we not please him through sacrificial works in themselves or even sacrificing ourselves, but we add to this problem by disobeying his active commandments. It's not like we're trying to worship him and obey, and of course that doesn't do anything, it doesn't add anything to him, because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All things are his. It's worse than that. Now we actually need atonement. We need to appease his wrath, and we know this, we've been going through this in Romans. Can't we do this by the way in which he has prescribed for atonement? Don't the lambs and bulls and goats assuage his anger? Remember the picture here. Asaph is correcting their minds. This is what they were doing. Blood, bulls, goats, lambs, sacrifice to atone for your sins and transgressions. Doesn't my obedience in worship and sacrifice make him more happy? and pleased with me? What did we just read? Do I eat the blood of bulls and goats? These are rhetorical questions for Asaph, and I think hopefully for us, the answer is no. Hebrews chapter 10. I'll jump down for the sake of time. Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 14, jump to the middle. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, once and for all. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. He was done. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Asaph and I, if this be in you like it comes in me, want to correct your mind. Our worship is a worship of thanksgiving. We bring nothing to him. It has all been done by him and through him and by Jesus. And we simply say thank you. Now, is this how we worship? Do we think that our relationship is broken based on our ability to obey? Are we more filled with joy and at peace when we obey his law and commandments? I know that I get that way. Remember what I just said about perfect sanctification, a single sacrifice, perfect perfection, once and for all. Now I want to move towards the joy that we have in this correction in worship. Luke chapter 10, previously Jesus had sent out the 72 followers or disciples to go preach the word and to go into the houses. We've heard this, this passage actually mentioned in the, in the pre preceding weeks here. Uh, previous weeks and um, shake off the dirt uh, of, your, of your sandals you've heard if, if one house won't receive you and then they come back verses 17 through 20 the 72 returned with joy focus on that with joy they're out there doing ministry they're worshiping they're doing ministry for Jesus and they returned with joy why Lord they say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, you think that's something? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, listen, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That's pretty awesome. We typically this day don't see that kind of power as far as those special gifts that happened around the time of Jesus's first coming and when he was here on this earth and the apostles. You think that's something? I've seen this and I've given you all of these powers. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Okay, Jesus, what should I rejoice in? Where do I find my joy? But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Perform your vows. Call upon me, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Rejoice in this, and your vow, your thanksgiving. Call upon me who can and is the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills and everything and say this vow Lord Jesus I'm going to love you and obey you and worship you and thank you until the day that I die simply because you are worthy to be loved and obeyed and worshiped O God I thank you for who you are and for writing my name in heaven to be with you, my great God, forever. That is worship. That is a source of joy. The third R, a reminder of retribution, verses 16 through 22. Even though he said all of that to his people, those who have thanks, and we'll, we'll get into this, there are people in the audience who need to be reminded of retribution. And this is rebuke and reproof, hearkening back to 2 Timothy, the rebuke of the covenant breaker. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. 
Now, these are people who are reciting God's statutes. They're in somehow associated among the people of God, the Hebrews. They're taking the covenant on their lips. We've seen that done with membership here, and all of us, I think, here uh, are members here or, or somewhere else. We've done this. For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. He's saying, why do you outwardly act as if you appreciate me or have thanks in your heart towards me? Remember the circumcised heart? Why do you act outwardly as if this is a reality in your heart? You shouldn't recite my statutes or take my covenant on your, on your lips because you hate instruction. You don't want to hear anything from me or my prophets. You hate teaching. You don't like discipling or discipline. And you do not walk with my word in front of you as if it were a path. You cast it behind you and carve out your own path, your own way. You toss it behind you. And here is what it looks like as we looked at this um, in verses 18 through 20. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. Thou shalt not steal. We're looking at the Ten Commandments here. Really kind of a, a quick bam, bam, bam is, is what Asaph is doing. You're seeing this. You keep the company with adulterers, maybe implied. At least you're giving um, credence to this or participating. So thou shalt not commit adultery. You give your mouth free reign for evil. This could be lying. Your tongue frames deceit. This could be uh, slandering your mother and father. This could be coveting um, false witness. It could be bearing false witness. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And so honor your father and mother as well. Do you think your mother wants you to slander her son? So we see this picture here, Asaph, a priest, the law, the tabernacle, and he's just rebuking, reminding them. Now more correction, rebuke, and warning. Let me correct you. Let me rebuke you. Let me warn you, verses 21 and 22. These things, the things, the Ten Commandments, the casting my words behind you, the hating of discipline, you have done, God is saying, and I have been silent. But you thought that I was like yourself, that I was one like yourself, meaning I avoid conflict. I don't hold a righteous judgment. There is no ultimate retribution. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. Verses 21 and 22. You thought that the I am was like you, but the I am is not like you. I will not keep, keep silent. I will rebuke you now, because as was stated earlier in the beginning, I am the judge, the God himself that is the judge. Mark this, we read Mark this, hearken to this, behold, look closely, pay attention. This is covenant breakers, the covenant visible people of God who are walking this way. God is not like us, and maybe sometimes we should be a, bit, a little bit more like our God when it's appropriate and say these warnings to people. Or in the military, when you're saying mark this or pay attention, we might say, tench, hut. And this is a position of attention where you put away everything and focus on the thing that is being presented before you. That's the idea here, sorry. That comes to mind when I hear this, mark this, pay attention, give your attention. Mark this then, you who forget God, shaka, God, forget, that is, to be oblivious of, want of memory or attention. This happens to me. 
I think it happens to all of us throughout the day, for seasons in our lives. We don't walk before the face of God. We forget God. Unfortunately, this is a warning. We don't want to be oblivious and just walk in our own way. We want to have his word before us, his statutes, because he is not one who will not hold us accountable. Lest I tear you to pieces. I couldn't help but think of Genesis 15 and the pieces cut in two. This was the suzerain vassal covenant. And it was an agreement that there would be retribution, there would be consequences and condemnation and death and destruction for the covenant breaker. And so this word tear you apart is like plucking or rendering pieces of food or bread with no one to save you. Finally, we're in verse 23. The final R, the reminder though, of restoration and reconciliation. The covenant keepers right sacrifices, right sacrifices glorifies God. And this is the training in righteousness. Let me remind you of the right way to be restored, how you are restored, how you are saved, to the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So I think this is a heart of thanksgiving, acknowledgement of what has been shown about this God and how he is to be worshiped, and then appreciating and being thankful and having his word before us because of who he is. And so as we come to a close, I'd like to do a couple of things, one thing, and then truly give you a exhortation or a parakaleo, a encouragement. It's a Greek word uh, for coming alongside somebody, an encouragement. Um, and so first, I would like everybody with me to take a deep breath in and out. And if you could, please put your hand on your heart. And this is simple. I used to do this with my children. And we should all be little children before God. And I'd also all like us to breathe in and breathe out and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. With me again. Breathe in. Thank you, God. One more time. Thank you, God. This is right worship. And we should start there. And everything else should move out from there. For in him we live and move and have our being. Secondly, there was this story of this weak, young, I say weak in faith, Christian, this young, zealous boy or girl who came to this older pastor or elder or Christian and said, I'm just trying and trying and trying to obey God and I just keep failing and failing and failing. I love him. I just... I just I can't do it. And, and the older Christian could see that this young one was so distraught. But the problem was, was the source of this young person's joy. Their faith was placed in their ability to do something for God instead of God's ability and in what he has done to do something for them. And so we need to reverse it. When we come to worship here, it is the blood of Jesus. It is what God has done in our daily lives. It is what God has already done, not what you can do for him, that needs to be the source of our joy. You will find no joy anywhere else. Look back to Romans chapter four. We've been hearing that this is a covenant, it always has been, of grace. In Ephesians 2, we read it, but I want you to read it anew. 
about this thanksgiving, for it is by a gift, grace, that you have been saved. Through faith, believe it. This is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that you may not boast or be robbed of joy, might I say. Why? Or because you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That doesn't mean we don't come to worship and try to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect and to do everything he has said in his law. That doesn't mean that Asaph didn't follow the law as delivered by Moses, but he wanted the hearts of the people to do it rightly. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We've got to walk in these good works. We possess salvation and we perform these good work sacrifices with a heart of thanksgiving and not as though we are providing anything to God who possesses and upholds everything, but simply out of thanks and obedience to our King. Yep, that's it. That is the sacrifice or obedience of thanksgiving. In recap, we had a reminder of who God is, a reminder about reforming our worship, a reminder about the retribution that is true, and a reminder about true restoration and reconciliation. May God grant us the strength to shed off all of our trust and our value in our ability to please him and simply realize that he is most pleased with us when we are most satisfied in him alone and what he has done for us. Amen. Please pray with me. Father God, let your Holy Spirit take the words that you have spoken through Asaph and through this psalm and through this ball of dirt which you have raised by your Spirit. And let it build us into the image of your Son. And let our hearts be full of thanks for all that you are and have done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.